Today we are continuing our series in Acts. We're in Acts chapter 20. So if you've got your Bibles there or you want to grab one from the pew, please do so. Open them up to Acts chapter 20. Because this morning, Acts chapter 20 actually starts with a lot of movements where Paul goes from this place to that place to that place to that place as he's heading basically on his way to Jerusalem. And so he starts this journey. And uh, along the way, uh, if you wanted to see a map of this journey, you can look it up over lunch today. Um, I'm not going to be doing it here today. But he starts this journey and um, he ends up wanting to basically focus a big part of this chapter on a impartation that he gives to the elders of the Ephesian church. And so we'll come across that later where he actually calls them to him. So his journey is not delayed. Smart move. If you know you're on a, a tight time frame, you get other people to meet you where you are. And so uh, I will, before we get to that, I want us to go to Acts chapter 20, verses 7, and that's where we'll pick it up today. On the first day of the week, we came together to break bread. Paul spoke to the people, and because he intended to leave the next day, kept on talking until midnight. There were many lamps in the upstairs room where we were meeting. Seated in a window was a young man named Eutychus, who was sinking into a deep sleep as Paul talked on and on. When he was sound asleep, he fell to the ground from the third story and was picked up dead. So here Paul is in Troas and he's only there a very short time. And so he wants to make the best use of his time teaching believers the amazing things of God and the grace of Jesus in the gospel. And here we have the first reference in Acts to worship happening on a Sunday. That's the first time it's recorded is here in, in uh, verse, from verse 7 of Acts 20. So Paul is there, he's doing church. A bit different to what we're doing today, but he's doing church and he starts talking and talking and talking and keeps on going until midnight. Now some of you might complain if I go on it to lunchtime, let alone midnight, you know, but that's what he's doing, right? Okay, and so poor Eutychus... He's there sitting in the window and he falls asleep. Now, I'm sure that there are many of us who have fallen asleep during a long, long, long sermon, right? We've all been there, haven't we? Yes. Thank you, Bob, for that that shout of a hand up. You know, yes, that's me. That's every second week, Aaron. (laughs) No, I haven't actually seen him sneezing. We're all good. We're all good. But but poor Eutychus, you know, he's actually supposed to be sleeping right now, isn't he? Anyway, we're normally asleep in the, at midnight and so is Eutychus. And, and he's, did you know that Eutychus's name actually means lucky? Like, if your name is lucky and you're sitting in the window, you're like, yeah, I'm fine. I, I'm lucky. All good. But no, he falls out. And, uh, you know, as we said, there's many lamps. And so he's probably, what he's probably done is gone, oh, gee, it's a bit stuffy in here with all these lamps going. I'll go and get some fresh air by the window. And so he's then sitting in this, this window with the fresh air, falls asleep anyway, and then falls out three stories and is dead. So when it says there um, that he was picked up dead, the, the Greek actually means like he was dead dead. Like not just passed out, not just knocked out, but picked up dead is, is, is he was dead. You can't get deader than dead. Um, so Paul went down, threw himself on the young man, put his arms around him and said, don't be alarmed, he said, he's alive. Then he went upstairs and again and broke bread and ate. And after talking until daylight, he left. 
the people took the young man home alive and were greatly comforted. So Paul brings Lucky back to life, has a snack, then keeps on preaching until daylight and then he goes on his way. So hopefully no one will fall asleep today and if you do, at least there isn't a three-story drop um, for you today. Um, but, but on the note of being comfortable, it has come to my attention that occasionally my voice can boom and be uncomfortable for some people. So if it is too noisy, if it, you know, either try a different seat in the church somehow because the speakers do it differently, or I'm sure our media team would be lovely to, and, and would, would if you just went up and said, can you just turn Aaron down a little bit or whatever, they'd be more than accommodating for requests such as those because we do want people to be comfortable to make them to make everyone feel at home and and comfortable here. So so please don't don't feel bad if you know it's like oh gee Aaron what you say is great but oh I get a headache at the end of it. So um. So yeah, please please feel free. Um, so from there, Paul travels on to Miletus, where he calls the Ephesian elders to him. As I said before, he didn't want to delay his trip and addresses them. Verse 18. You know how I lived the whole time I was with you. From the first day I came into the province of Asia, I served the Lord with great humility and with tears in the midst of severe testing by the plots of my Jewish opponents. You knew that I have not hesitated to preach anything that would be helpful to you, but have taught you publicly and from house to house. I've declared to both Jews and Greeks that they must turn to God in repentance and have faith in our Lord Jesus. Paul recounts to the elders, who he is also referred to as overseers and shepherds, and so he calls these men together as, as the pastors, elders, overseers of the church in Ephesus, and he speaks of the example that he himself has set for them and how tirelessly he has worked to preach the gospel faithfully, even though he's faced much opposition and testing. And so he reiterates the central message of the gospel, repentance and faith. You know, Paul is always on message. He's always on message. He's always communicating the most important things. And even here, when he gives this little summary, the gospel is central to even those elements. Paul knows the importance of ensuring that these church leaders maintained the same sort of strength and commitment that he had in the message of truth and hope. And so everything he says is flavoured by the gospel. And there's always, he comes back to that, that, that crux of it, repentance and faith. And so verse 22, And now, compelled by the Spirit, uh, I am going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there, I only know that in every city the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardships are facing me. However, I consider my life worth nothing to me. My only aim is to finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the good news of God's grace. See, Paul had been told by many different people as they had been guided by the Holy Spirit as well as being spoken directly to through the Holy Spirit that he is going to face imprisonment and hardship. Yet he's also obedient to the Spirit's compulsion to go to Jerusalem. So even though he knows that it's going to be a rough ride, he's like, I'm still going to do it anyway because that is my call as, a, as in life is to be obedient to the Spirit's guiding. And so here we see Paul's heart laid bare. He says, I consider my life worth nothing to me. My only aim is to finish the race and complete the task that the Lord Jesus has given to me, the task of testifying to the good news of God's grace. Now, can I tell you one thing here? This is not a humble brag, right? Paul isn't at this point going, you know what? This is so good about me. 
And, uh, you know, that's just like, you know, I'm just humble bragging. We know what a humble brag is, right? We come across a humble brag. Your inflatable inner tube is way cooler than my 80-foot yacht. You get to be so much closer to the water and to nature. I envy you. I really do. That's a humble brag, right? Uh, oh, I just ate 15 pieces of chocolate. Got to learn, you know, to control myself when flying first class or they cancel my modelling contract. You know, that's a humble brag, right? Oh, I can't believe I sound like such an idiot on TV last night. A humble brag. Oh, I'm exhausted from my two-week holiday to Hawaii. I need a holiday just to get over it. A humble brag, right? Paul isn't doing that. He's not saying, oh, I've been doing all these glorious, wonderful things, you know, you know, you should do them too as a way of pumping himself up. No, no, no. Paul is genuine. These are his values. The gospel is far more important than my life. Obedience to God is paramount no matter what it costs me personally. What God has called me to do, I must do. I must complete it. I'm not going to get distracted. I'm going to run the race. I'm going to complete it. I'm not going to fail. I'm going to get the job done that the Lord Jesus has given to me. That is Paul. That is him him being genuine. And in verse 25, he continues. Now, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about preaching the kingdom will ever see me again. Therefore, I declare to you today that I am innocent of the blood of any of you, for I have not hesitated to proclaim to you the whole will of God. So if you were to read this, you'd be like, man, that, that's a bit of a weird declaration, isn't it? I am, you know, what, what does he mean when he says innocent of the blood of any of you? That's really bizarre. It's not like he's, he's going to kill them, is it? And You know what? We know that Paul takes the scriptures very seriously, don't we? He is well versed in the Old Testament. I mean, Paul was one of those guys that used to go upholding the, the Jewish law and beating people that didn't. That was his background. That was where he was saved from. And so it reminds me, this passage of being um, you know, d- declaring that he's innocent of the blood of any of you, it reminds me of, of, of a, a charge that was given to Ezekiel in chapter 33. So if you want to go to Ezekiel 33, I'll also be reading it out. The word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, speak to your people and say to them, when I bring the sword against a land and the people of the land choose one of their men and make him their watchman, and he sees the sword coming against the land and blows the trumpet to warn people, then if anyone hears the trumpet to warn the people, if anyone hears the trumpet but does not heed the warning and the sword comes and takes their life, their blood will be on their head, their own head. Since they heard the sound of the trumpet but did not heed the warning, their blood will be on their own head. If they had heeded the warning, they would have saved themselves. But if the watchman sees the sword coming and does not blow the trumpet to warn the people and the sword comes and takes someone's life, that person's life will be taken because of their sin, but I will hold the watchman accountable for their blood. So it's a long way of saying Paul views himself as the watchman. I believe he senses that he has much the same calling as Ezekiel. He's the watchman. It is his responsibility to blow the trumpet, to sound the call, to disperse the information to everyone, to preach the gospel so that everyone may have the opportunity to hear the truth and, and are offered the opportunity to repent and believe. 
Paul is innocent of their blood because he has faithfully proclaimed to them the truths of the scripture and of Jesus. So Paul is saying here that he's not accountable before God for any future doctrinal or moral error that might come to the Ephesian church because he didn't shy away also from teaching every part of the word of God. And so he taught the whole counsel of God. He taught the entirety of God's redemptive plan unfolded in scripture. So even though some parts of God's word were unpopular or difficult, Paul did not omit any of them in his preaching. And in refusing to pass over teachings that might have offended some people, Paul gave a courageous example that is a model for all who would teach after him. And I think this is a very prescient word for us today. This is the example that we as a church must follow. We will not shy away from teaching the whole counsel of God, the whole word of God. We will not ignore parts of the Bible that are unpopular or difficult. Our culture around us keeps telling us to move past parts of the Bible which they say are offensive, but the very nature of the gospel is offensive because it says that we need to be saved from death and destruction. The Bible teaches that sin is sin, that God is a just God, that there are consequences to our sin and that those consequences are eternal damnation. Jesus taught about this in Luke chapter 16 when he told the parable of the rich man and the poor man Lazarus. Lazarus died and was welcomed into fellowship with other believers already in heaven and Abraham is named as one of these. But the rich man went to Hades, the place of the wicked, which we also call hell. And it is a place of torment. The rich man sees the unbridgeable gulf between heaven and hell and it, is, and it appears is aware of blessings being experienced by the believers in heaven. Then the rich man's response as he speaks to Abraham is to ask him to, to dip his finger, for Lazarus to dip his finger in water and cool his tongue as he's in anguish and in the flames. So where do we get the pictures of fiery hell from? We get it from the words of Jesus. But this is not possible. The whole gulf is unbridgeable. And the rich man then asks that Lazarus be sent back to his household to warn them of the consequences of their lifestyle. But Abraham's response is that they have the scriptures and that the scriptures are enough to testify to the truth. And if they ignore God's word, then the same fate will await them. And so from Jesus' teaching here on this snapshot into eternity, it seems clear that immediately after death, both believers and unbelievers have a conscious awareness of their eternal status and enter at once into the suffering or blessings. That is not a popular message. This is offensive to those who do not believe. But the grace of the gospel is that God offers us pardon through the person and work of Jesus Christ for those who repent and believe. There is a saviour freely available to all. You know, and this is not a popular message in our culture today. Our culture is so preoccupied with not offending anyone unless you're a white male and Christian. Our culture keeps telling us that we are our own gods and we are our own saviour and so any voice that speaks up and tells otherwise is offensive and so then should be silenced. And, and to me that really actually sounds like slavery and it's a stark contrast to the freedom of the gospel. But I digress. Paul testifies that he has taught the whole will of God. He has not shied away from teaching the unpopular or the difficult bits of the Bible and neither should we. 
And so he gives them this charge as church leaders. Verse 28. Keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. Even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. So be on your guard. Remember that for three years I never stopped warning each of you night and day with tears. And so the first point that really speaks boldly to me here is that the church matters to God. I mean, he bought it with his blood, so it matters to God. Don't ever question if the church matters to God, because it does. It matters intimately to him. And has it ever hit you that God only has one plan for the salvation of the world? Has it ever hit you that? And do you know what that plan is? It's the church. He doesn't have a plan B. And this passage tells us so, because God bought it with his blood and so it's very very clear that the church is so important to God that he spent his blood on it that is his only plan for the salvation of the world the church of Jesus Christ there's no other plan and so what we do who we are as the church of God is really important and and, and it was so important to God that the church exists and the church become the driving force for the gospel that its very existence cost God greatly It cost the blood of Jesus in his atoning work on the cross. You know, that's a pretty high price to pay. But God deemed us, the church, worth it. So don't ever be blasé about God's church because it matters to God dearly. You could say that he paid the ultimate price for you and for me. And the second point I want to draw out of this passage is that God has given leaders to the church for a reason. Last week, we commissioned our leaders at our AGM, Lyle, Graham and Jan as elders, Rob, Russell, Rosemary and Rob as deacons. And together, they make up the leadership team. And this is a pertinent time for a reminder for us all that that God has given leaders to our church for a reason. It's so easy to second guess leaders around us, isn't it? I mean, in Australian culture, we're almost born to second guess those in authority over us. I mean, how many times do we second-guess politicians? Do we second-guess our boss at work? Do we second-guess the authority figures that have been in place around us? I mean, all you've got to do is look at shows like RBT and you see that people just do not respect the authorities placed over them. And so it's like a sport in Australia, isn't it? You know, not respecting authority is almost like how many points did you score today? Oh, well, I didn't respect my mum, didn't respect my dad, didn't respect my teacher, didn't respect my boss. You know, I'm winning. That's four out of four so far. It's like a sport. But it doesn't take us long to also get into that habit. And a question I have is, should we do the same in the church? Should we let our culture, our Australian culture, influence how we deal with the leaders and those in authority over us in the church? See, one of the things that I love about going through Acts is that you see so many times, time and again, it comes up that people are in glad submission to the gospel and to those in authority placed over them in the churches. That's the flavor through the book of Acts. So should we question our church leaders? Well, I think the answer to that is we will find out as we read through what Paul is charging these church leaders with. What are church leaders, elders, deacons, pastors, what are we called to be? Well, the first thing 
when we touched on it before, is that Paul calls us to be watchmen. A bit like Ezekiel. To keep watch over ourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made us overseers. And this is a bit like the, the Ezekiel watchman analogy that he used earlier. Keep, keeping watch was such a vital position because a watchman was the first line of defence for a city. The watchman was responsible for raising the alarm if danger arose. And if danger does arise, then we, we should be raising that alarm loudly. We must be diligent in this task. And so what dangers could we face as individuals and a church? Well, individually, I believe we're all susceptible to misguided motivations, to sinful desires and to false doctrine if we don't think biblically about what we're doing. And so, if a leader is not being a good watchman, that's a time to question. That's a time to lovingly speak with that person directly and ask how are they going and to support them, love them and uphold them as a watchman. So if our leaders are not being watchmen well, then please, you should be calling us to account. You should be questioning us. You should be supporting the leaders to be faithful watchmen. Second of all, Paul also says to be shepherds. See, David was a shepherd boy who became king. And there are many lessons that we could all learn from being a shepherd, like what David learned that prepared him to be a king. But the whole reason a shepherd is a shepherd is because they have sheep. If you are a shepherd without a sheep, without sheep, then you're not a shepherd. You're just a bloke walking along a field. Sheep are what give the shepherd purpose. And so a shepherd is responsible for looking after their sheep, feeding them, taking them to places to drink and quench their thirst and, and to find food and sustenance, providing protection and shelter from the elements and from danger, looking after them when they are sick or injured and having a strong relationship with the sheep. So the sheep they knew were being loved and cared for and you could have confidence in their shepherd. You know, one of the things I loved about the first century farming practices, and I'm glad that we don't do them today, but I love the fact that the, the flock had such a close and intimate relationship with their shepherd that you might have 10 different shepherds all grazing in the area, but they will come and put all their, their sheep in a cave and be in the front of it to protect them at night. And so all the, the flocks, they'd all be mixed in together. And so when it was time to leave in the morning from a safe corral or something, all that shepherd would do, come on sheep, come on. And all his sheep would follow him because they knew him. They had an intimate relationship and so the sheep knew their shepherd and they never had to worry about their flocks getting mixed up because they followed their leader because they had an intimate relationship with their leader. We don't have the same abilities or that sort of practice in our farming communities today, do we? They're almost seen as a commodity except for red dot. So when would you question a shepherd? Well, you question a shepherd if they're not looking after their sheep. And if they are looking after sheep, well, we should be encouraging our shepherds, supporting our shepherds and making it easier for our shepherds to shepherd us. And shepherds are also protectors. You know, part of the job of a shepherd was to protect the flock from dangers. You know, and Paul charged these leaders with that responsibility. Today, we've got some very good systems in place and we'll continue to establish good systems to protect everyone in the church. You know, part of that is our code of conduct, which all leaders in our church sign, as well as church safe training and, and the like. And it's very important that we are a safe space and that we do protect each other and care for each other. Paul also uh, was really big on teaching the truth. And so he charges leaders as teachers. You know, so much of his writing is focused on correct doctrine 
And he, he charges them here, and we actually see through his letters in Ephesians that, that doctrine is actually an issue that they struggled with in the church in Ephesus. And so he, he charges them here with a correct doctrine on explaining and teaching the truth so that people are not led astray by false doctrine. You know, Paul would be aghast at what some people have turned his teachings into. I mean, you look around at some of the, the ways in which Paul's teaching has been twisted, and we see things like, like prosperity doctrine. We th- see things like Catholic religiousness, where it's all about what you do, and you have to do this to be saved. Well, that's not the gospel. You know, and, and even in some circles, you see that you must speak in tongues if you're going to be saved. Well, I don't read that in Scripture. So th- there's twistings of it. And I'm sure that each of us could list other distortions of the truth where something's been twisted and, and is, is not quite right. The good doctrine is important because if we ever get our doctrine wrong, if we ever get what we believe the Bible teaches wrong, then it can massively impact the lives around us and snowball into tragedies. One example of this is Paul's writing in 1 Corinthians 7 and his instruction that it is better to remain single if you can without sinning because then you can better serve the Lord and be more devoted to the ministry. Now I know that when I was single I had a lot more time and freedom to do what I wanted to do and so I would be involved in a lot more things than what I can now with a family, with responsibilities and with you know two little humans to help raise. You know, so so I, if I didn't have a family, I could be, I'd have far more time to be devoted to the Lord. And so that's what Paul is saying. If it's good, then great. Grab hold of that. You know, it is excellent to serve the Lord with all of who you are and to not have the distractions that might come with family and everything. But he says to do it without, if you can do that, without sinning. And so the Catholic Church many years ago forbade priests from marrying so they could be more fully devoted to the ministry as Paul taught. But they forgot one part of that, if they can without sinning. And so you have priests who are human, who have desires, and those desires have tragically ended up being expressed in perversions and sin. Bad doctrine snowballed into disastrous consequences. And so when should we question our teachers? If they're teaching false truths, bad doctrine, or ignoring parts of the scripture in favour of others, or distorting the scriptures. That's when you question a teacher. And so I think everyone should be coming here with their Bible. And when I'm preaching, you should be looking at the passage and you should be going, is that what it really says? It should be in context. I believe that's why I like, love preaching ex- in expository fashion. You go verse by verse by verse by verse because then it's in context. It's not cherry picking verses that support an idea that I've come up with that I want to to teach about and so I just go and grab this passage out of context and this verse out of context and say see the Bible said so no 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 I preach the scriptures and that is what informs my preaching is what the Bible says and so the other part of it is that we need to be on our guard Paul starts verse 31 with the words be on your guard an important call for us all have you ever watched documentaries with meerkats or with prairie dogs you, they, they build these mounds so that they can see above the grasslands and, and someone actually can see that they post sentries and when a hawk swoops, they give this specific shout which is a call, as a watchman does, of danger. And so everyone, you see them all frosting, they scurry into their burrows, into safety. You know, we are to be on our guard. And it's important for us all because I can tell you one thing. Leaders are not infallible. It's sad, isn't it? 
I know it comes as a shock to many of you today. Leaders are not perfect. It's so sad. I wish all church leaders were, but you know what? We're human. We're all human, Russell more so than others. (laughs) With a joke like that this morning, seriously. (laughs) But we need to be on our guard and watch out for, to support and to lift up our leaders, to make their jobs a joy, not a burden. And yes, there'll be times that something is said by a leader that might be offensive, that you might be offended by, or you might take things in a manner in which they may not have been meant. You know, this happens all the time. And not just with leaders, because we're not infallible. We're all human, so we all need grace. You know, one of the saddest things that can derail unity in a group of people is offence. I'm offended by that. You've offended me. And then it builds just this chasm. And so a relationship cannot be healthy because I'm offended. And sometimes people grab hold of their offence and hold on to that offence and make that bigger than anything else in their life. And so it causes this massive big rift and this massive just just destruction of relationship because I got offended. People don't follow the principles of Matthew 19. If you have an issue with your brother, go to them. Sort it out. What do we do as family? When my brother offends me, what do I do? Yep, give him a whack over the head and we move on. Or we, we, we duke it out with words or whatever. We're still family. That's not going to change, is it? And so what are we here at church? We're family, right? So we should have the freedom to go and say, hey, Rob, you know what, that, that thing you said to me the other day, I know that you meant it offhand, but I just want to know that, that actually really offended me. You know, can we talk about this? And Rob's probably going, you know what? I had no idea that it offended you. I'm so sorry. Look, I had no idea. It was something I said offhand or whatever. And sort of, you know, lovely, stronger relationship afterwards, right? Rather than, I'm offended. I'm not going to speak to Rob. I'm not going to speak to Judy. And anyone that's their friend, right, well, they're off my list too. How often do we do that? We're human. That's what happens, right? You know, and don't don't worry, Rob, you haven't said anything that's offended me. (laughs) But that's okay. Water off a duck's back. We're family, right? Pain and hurt are possible, if not inevitable, because we're family. Has anyone ever not been hurt by someone in their family? We've all experienced it. We've all experienced it in church. I can almost guarantee you that most people who have been attending church for a few years would have been hurt by someone in the church. And maybe that it was even a leader. You know, sometimes things are said that cause offence. Actions are taken that step on toes. Decisions are made that we're not in agreement with and we can get hurt. Pain and hurt are possible, if not inevitable. You know, and sometimes that can lead us away from God. How could a leader of the church, one of God's representatives, anointed by the Holy Spirit to lead this congregation, how could they hurt me so badly? Well, God, maybe you're not even real. And sometimes that can skew our views and it can draw us away. And being drawn away could happen to any of us if we're not on our guard. Because we must be vigilant with ourselves and with others, with each other, that we're not easily drawn away from God's plans and purposes in our lives and for our lives. Offence can so easily derail an effective and unified family. So we need to be on our guard and to support and pray for each other and continually apply the gospel to our circumstances. I think sometimes people forget that Christians are still sinners. We're just saved by grace. You know, you don't find a hospital for just well people, right? People go to the hospital because they say, hey, 
I've got a problem. I'm not well. It's the same with the church. We come to church because we say, hey God, I understand I'm a sinner and I need a saviour. I need your grace. So, you know, churches aren't a place for the holy, although, you know, that's imputed to us through God's righteousness. For those of us that believe, churches are full of sinners. We're here because we say, hey, look, I know that I fall short, but the gospel saves me. And so we're all sinners in need of a saviour. That saviour comes in the personal work of Jesus Christ. So we must keep that central to our relationship with our family. Paul gives a parting greeting, committing to them to God and the word of grace, encourages them to be built up in that and to leave an inheritance of grace. He reminds them of the example that he has been uh, in not getting distracted by worldly desires, but instead giving and supporting to those around him. So this morning I want to give us a parting greeting and I want to pray into us that grace would abound. Forgiveness would flow freely. Our leaders would feel loved and supported. That we would keep to sound doctrine and not be led astray. That the gospel would be central and present in all we think, do and say. That we would build each other up, encourage one another, love one another and help each person feel part of our family here. Because this is a place where everyone can belong. You know, a lot of our songs this morning are focused on our identity, who we are. We're free, we're children of God, we serve a powerful risen Saviour. And to end our service this morning, I want to celebrate our freedom and I want to celebrate that through singing a song that just beautifully captures God's amazing grace and the freedom that is found in that grace. So as I pray... Um, the band's going to come up and then we'll sing. So, uh, so let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you this morning for your word which has captivated us. Lord, there are, are examples that Paul has been saying and giving to us that, Lord, I, I hope we can grasp hold of. And so, Lord, as I pray into us now, I pray that grace would abound. I pray that, indeed, forgiveness would flow freely in and amongst us here. Lord, I pray that our leaders would feel just an abundance of your love and the love of the the, the people around us and, and in this church and would feel supported. I pray that, Lord, we would keep sound doctrine central and, and, and as a very important element of our time together. Oh, Lord, I pray that the gospel would be central and present in all that we think, do and say and that we'd continue to be, be applying the gospel to our circumstances. And that, Lord, when we are offended, Lord, we would apply the gospel even in those moments too. That we would build each other up, that we would encourage one another to love one another and help each person feel part of our family here. And so I pray this in the name of the mighty Lord Jesus, who is mighty to save. And we celebrate this morning that amazing grace that he brings us. Amen.